0: Here in the auditorium, let's stay with that passage that Matt just read from, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And I wanna call your attention, as I usually try to do, to one verse that will sort of single out, although we'll be looking at the whole passage that's here. That would be verse number 17. And so look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four and verse number 17, where he says this, "'Then we which are alive and remain "'shall be caught up together, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Give you just a little hint as to why that verse is singled out. Notice the phrase caught up. Caught up. And maybe we don't pause so very much sometimes on just a word or two, but that one has particular significance. All certainly isn't the whole message, but has particular significance in what we're going to be looking at today. So let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for each willing worker and each participant in the service today and each person who's in attendance. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of service, and you have given to each of us a high and holy calling to love you, to honor you, and to appreciate your soon appearing. We thank you that the Lord's table gives us the opportunity to focus on your first coming, And why you came into this world because it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And thank you, Father, for the truth of the gospel that has been brought home to the heart of each of us who knows you by the power and convincing ministry of the Holy Spirit, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And now, Father, thank you for the blessed hope that you've given to your church, that Jesus is indeed coming again soon. We pray, Father, that that would be something that we are reminded of, that be something that influences our lives. We know that there is a great interest, even amongst people who don't necessarily claim Christianity in the topic of the last things and Bible prophecy, these types of things. And we know, Father, that to be curious about those things is natural. But we do pray, Father, that we will have more than that as believers, that we will love your appearing, knowing that we have the opportunity to lay eyes on you for the very first time in that sense. And we just pray that you will help us to love the rapture and the second coming of the church most because we'll see you. And then I pray, Father, beyond that, we will also exalt in the other great truths that are brought to bear in this passage today. So guide, direct, and bless us, I pray, as God's word is presented today. Bless those that are handling our children downstairs. Give them great wisdom. Thank you for our nursery workers. Bless those that are working in the audiovisual area. And uh, we just thank you for each person's ministry here today. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. Well, I sort of already pulled my punch just slightly, and I'll, so I'll reiterate again. Uh, we have uh, our April, or uh, May rather, observance of the Lord's table this morning, and so uh, one of the things that we think about in relationship to that is is for, the Bible tells us, uh, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till what? till he comes so we know that the lord's table is one of the ordinances given to the church we know that we practice that during the church age we practice that until jesus comes again and so although many times our focus in the lord's table is to think about redemption and the cross jesus suffering those types of things yet there is always an important connection with the lord's soon return Now beyond that, I want to draw something else to your attention. In the evening, we haven't been with it for a while, but in my evening series, I've been dealing with a a sermon series entitled Great Doctrinal Themes of the Bible. And we have sort of worked our way down now to the last unit in that. You probably don't really remember because it's it's been quite a few Sunday nights before uh, since we were really uh, had the opportunity to be working on that series. But When you get to the end of most doctrinal statements, and this will be true of the one that's in our church constitution, you start getting to the subject of last things. And so I'm going to pick up on a title in that last unit when I start this tonight, um, What to Believe About the Future, but there are eight different messages that I'm going to be bringing as a part of that before we conclude that Sunday evening series and actually, if I were doing it all on the Sunday night, the first one would be the subject that I'm gonna talk about this morning. And so I'm actually going to start it this morning and we're gonna deal with another subject tonight, the judgment seat of Christ. But the topic before us this morning is the rapture of the church. The rapture has been in news recently. I'm not sure if you focused on this, if you saw this, but we had on the 23rd of April another failed prediction about the rapture. So if you didn't pick up on this, I'm going to give you a little bit of the story as it was reported in the news. This particular story appeared in Fox News and was later picked up by the New York Times, I'm sorry, the New York Post. And the title of the article was this, April 23 is the latest kooky prediction for the rapture. You can tell right away the church gets a black eye every time something like this happens. But Here's the first part of the article if you didn't catch this to kind of know what I'm talking about this morning. The end is near. The world will cease to exist on April 23 according to a prediction that has some laughing, some yawning and yet others making preparations that could leave their li- lives in shambles. The warning about an upcoming rapture from numerologist David Meade follows a long tradition of end of days predictions. A little later in the article, it says this what Meade said. Meade's recent rapture warning marks the second time in less than a year that he has warned about the end of the earth. Last year, Meade said that the end was imminent. The end has failed to come many times previously, as well with predictions going back at least to the Revolutionary War. Meade based the April 23 coming of the rapture when conviction holds that believers will be absorbed into the heavens while non-believers are left behind and die over a period of about five months on the premise that the sun, moon, and Jupiter, which supposedly represents the Messiah, will be in Virgo. Virgo is said to represent the woman from the biblical passage. Well, the article goes on to great lengths, but that's at least enough to sort of get you... uh, up to speed if you missed those stories or didn't look into it. So this morning I thought it would be a good occasion do this in the morning service. We'll just sort of kick off what's going to happen over a number of Sundays in the evening services by dealing with a, a rather specific part of this, and that is why the rapture didn't occur on April 23. It's a great opportunity in general for us to brush up on the rapture, to be sure that we're current and in our thinking about this and thinking about the rapture. It's a great topic to talk about, but as I say again, beyond this, it's been in the news, so maybe there are some things that are important to say to people to sort of uh, help us if perhaps we looked at those articles or saw those things and we're kind of saying to ourselves, okay, what's going on here? So I have three questions that I want to put before you this morning in the development of this. And first of all is what is the rapture? So if you receive that question from someone, what is the rapture? How would you answer that question? Now maybe you'll begin to see why I wanted to focus on 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which talks about believers being caught up together with them in the clouds. Because at the first part of this one of the things that I want to say so in case you might be caught off guard by this and this might sort of uh, befuddle you if you were having a discussion with someone is rapture is another one of those terms like trinity that helps us to have a name for a teaching that we believe is in the bible that accurately reflects what the bible teaches but the specific term itself is not in the bible So you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but what's important is not whether the term is in the Bible, it's whether the Bible teaches that, correct? Same thing is true about the rapture. Nothing wrong with using a term that helps us to name a doctrine and helps us to draw attention to what we believe that doctrine teaches. What's important is not the name so much as whether or not we're actually teaching something that is in the Bible, so is the Trinity in the Bible? And we certainly believe it is. So we have a good word that's come to be used. And is the rapture in the Bible? And we certainly believe it is. And we have a good word that we've been able to use. Where does it come from? That's kind of what I'm heading towards. It's not technically in the Bible. Well, it comes from a, a Latin word. And most of us don't know much Latin. Anybody study Latin in school? Just curious. Okay, good. I had three years. <laughs> so I mean, you know, it, it touches the common chord I can remember doing all that. And uh we had a teacher that was pretty insistent that you learn it and learn it right. So, yeah, that was back a hundred years ago. I don't know if they even offer it very much in schools any longer, but the the Latin word, you'll hear it right away, sounds like rapture, and that's the reason because that's where rapture comes from. And the Latin term is rapio. And why that's important is because in the Latin version of the Bible, that's the word that was used to translate 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where we see it right here. Look down again at your Bible. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the word, caught up. Caught up, snatched away. Now, you say, well, pastor, wasn't the New Testament written in Greek? And yes, that helps us to know too because although the latin translation was from the greek now we come back to the greek word and i'm not going to bore you with a lot of technicalities there's a real purpose for this actually the term the new testament in the original language is harpazo why that's important is because i'm going to be able to tell you something that for some of you right away you might be able to say okay i know more about that word than i thought others of you are going to say never heard that before But actually, harpazo, it means to snatch away, to seize, to catch away. And in Greek mythology, you actually had a creature in Greek mythology. I know most of us aren't students of that. I don't profess to be either. I know a little something about it. I think touching base with it helps us understand the meaning of the term. But you had in ancient Greek mythology a creature called the harpy. Anybody ever heard of that before? Okay, good, a couple people have. And so if you put it in the plural, you have the harpies. Now, most of us today, when we think of somebody harping, uh, that's kind of a, a little bit of a negative connotation. Someone plays the harp, that's a little different, but someone harping is a little different. But the harpies are different altogether, again, because they were half bird, half human. What a horrible concept. Half bird, half human, and they would swoop down, so you kind of get the idea, and they would snatch away and catch away people who were ultimately destined to be tormented and to ultimately wind up in the place that Greek referred to as Tartarus. I know you've heard that term before as well, but that was essentially the place of punishment. Our term, we would think of that as hell, but we're not so much worried about Greek mythology. We just want to know what the Bible teaches. But that helps us understand this. So if these harpies, this is a negative connotation, they came swooping down sort of like a bird of prey. You've seen this before, right? I mean, if you've ever seen a, a bird of prey swoop down, maybe this a hawk comes down, grabs a mouse. Or maybe you see a bird that catches fish from the water, and unlike the pelican, if you're familiar with how the pelican does this, the pelican flies along, sees the fish in the water, and then makes his move. And all of a sudden, it's like a 747 coming down and hitting the water, this huge bird. And he gets it in his mouth. Other birds come down and use their talons to grab a fish. So that doesn't sound very comforting to us, and the rapture is supposed to comfort, but at least you get the idea of the term to catch away, to snatch away. Snatch is a little bit... um, negative to us. So when you have this term in the Bible, it's almost invariably translated to catch away. I'm going to give you some examples without our turning, just to save a little time. You're familiar with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip is commanded by God. He goes into the desert. He finds this man who is returning from worshiping in Jerusalem. And he's in his chariot, and he's reading from the Role and the place that he's reading at is Acts chapter 8 he doesn't understand and the spirit of God sends Philip to minister to him and says join yourself to this chariot and so he goes and he says to the man understandest what thou readest and the man says how can I accept some man should show me and Philip says I think I know why I'm here and he explains from that passage about Jesus and the gospel The man is saved. What a wonderful thing that is in the book of Acts to see here's somebody that God has brought to Jerusalem to worship. He's from Ethiopia. He's the treasurer to the queen whose name is Candace. And God knows all this. And God wants to put people in different places to spread his word. And he saves this man. And so we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 39 after he's saved, they come to water the Ethiopian eunuch says well here's some water what would hinder me from being baptized and Philip says if you believe with all your heart and the man is baptized and verse 39 says this and when they were come up out of the water the spirit of the Lord here's our term caught away Philip just reminds you of anything in the old testament when Elijah at the end of his life was caught away so this is not without biblical precedent but here's a use of the word that might help you to we don't really know how that works but he was found somewhere else, there to preach the gospel again. However, God worked all that is his business. But Paul had an experience like this. In Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse two, I think most Bible teachers believe this. I know I certainly do, that Paul's referring to himself, and he says this, "I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. such an one caught up to the third heaven, there's our word." Harpazo in Greek, caught up. Then he says in verse four, how that it, he was caught up, there it is again, into paradise and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. So those are some of the other occurrences to help us get, a, get an understanding of what this term means. Although it may not be in the Bible, obviously it's an accurate term to reflect what we see the Bible teaching is going to happen to rap, in the rapture for that living generation of believers. This is what it's talking about in verse 17 of chapter 4. So we come to the term rapture and we come to the return of Christ. We come to the return of Christ for believers where there's a little bit of a distinction between what I'm talking about now and what a lot of people mean when they refer to the second coming. Do you know what the distinctions are? In other words, what we would be saying, follow with me now so you don't get lost. What we would be saying is that under the broad terminology of Jesus' return or his second coming, you actually have two phases in this. You have the rapture of the church, but you have when Jesus actually returns to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. You notice that the verses that describe that tend to make us feel that we're looking at a different time and a different event. That's true. For example, like Revelation chapter 19, we're told that Jesus returns on a white horse to judge and to make war. So when Christ returns to the earth to set up his glorious kingdom, his thousand-year rule and reign on the earth, it's a very visible event something that's very public, something that everyone knows and some very definite signs precede that and some very definite events take place on the earth once that happens. The rapture, which we understand to be earlier than that by about seven years, is really a secret type event. In other words, by that I mean not public. I don't mean it's secret in the sense you can't know about it. You obviously know about it. I mean that it's just not a public event. Believers participate in this. Verse number 17 says, in the clouds. And the other is quite public. For example, listen to this from Matthew 27 when Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verse 27, when Jesus was talking about his return to the earth. This is how he described it. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That'd be a little hard to hide, wouldn't it? That'd be a little hard for everybody on the earth not to be aware of. He continues later, and he says, talking about signs, he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Then he says, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Well, so here you have an event that's described for us in Daniel chapter 9, where you have Daniel's 70 weeks. And so if you think about this from the standpoint of what I'm trying to talk about this morning, differences between how the Bible describes Jesus' second coming in the sense of his return to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom, very public, the Bible describes actual signs preceding this. So that if you were a student of the Old Testament, you believed the Old Testament, and you knew this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and you actually saw that event take place, it's in the news or however you're aware of that, well, you have a clue, basically, because you're in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, which means that the return of Christ to the earth can't be more than roughly three and a half years from that point. The problem with equating that with the rapture is is that everywhere we encounter the teaching of the rapture in Scripture, it's portrayed as an imminent event whose date we do not know. So there are really no signs in connection with the rapture, but Jesus is describing this. He continues in verse number 19. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. That'd be a little hard to hide, wouldn't it? And the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Well, beloved, whatever that's describing... I'm not saying that's not literal, but I'm just saying whatever those events are when the powers of the heaven are shaken, obviously those are things that proceed and make clear that the return of Christ to the earth is very close, and those things are accompanying, or just before that, Little, pretty much tip your hand. Do you understand what I'm saying? And he goes on, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he shall send forth his angels with a great uh, sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other so the rapture if we understand all of this correctly is an imminent event. That is, we really don't know the day or the hour. There are no specific signs in Scripture that are given to alert us to this. In fact, it is intentionally left that way, and I'm going to get to that later in the message. But it is the next great prophetic event for which we wait. And for those of us who are believers, Paul called it the blessed hope. The church's responsibility is to do exactly what Paul was talking about when he talked about that in Titus 2.13, in which he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And honestly, folks, we need reminders about this, which is why it's a great thing that, even though we don't talk about it that much, the Lord's table reminds us that we do this till he come. Maybe, I don't know, we should have more preaching on this, but... Jesus' return is something that needs to factor into our lives. Um, If Christ could return at any time, do you see the spiritual, if I may call it this, pressure that that is meant to exert on us because each day we're to be looking for that, we're to be in expectation of that event, and we're to be ready for that event, living in such a way that we are ready for the return of Christ. All right, here's the second question. What... Will happen at the rapture. So let's take a look at that for a moment. I will tell you in advance. I'm not going to talk a lot about these events because some of them, some of these topics, will form those messages that I told you I'll be bringing the the uh, seven more messages that I'll be bringing in our evening services about what to believe about the future. Great doctrinal themes, kind of ending up with last things. But I'll name you at least, and we'll just sort of do this very briefly in survey style. What Things will occur, or what will, occur at the ra- what will happen at the rapture, three great things will happen. I hope when I tell you this this morning, you'll be encouraged. I hope you're looking forward to these things. I, I said in my prayer, I, you know, I can't help but be challenged by these things because I'm sure that none of us looks enough, none of us thinks enough, none of us watches enough in terms of the soon return of Christ we all believe it but what effect does God want that to have on our lives and he gives us some things to look forward to and sometimes I'm convicted because it's easy for me to look forward to some of the get out of here you ever do that I mean I'll be so glad when Jesus comes that's a line out of a song I really will I mean, when you're young, I'll tell you something, folks, and a lot of people here tonight or this morning identify with this. When you're young, you're thinking about life and you're thinking about all those things that you know life involves and that everybody wants to do because it's spread into us. We want to grow up. We want to mature. Uh, we want to find our calling in life. We want to find a partner in life. So we think of marriage. We, we want to have children. Sometimes our perspective is a little worldly and we think of things that we want in life, things, possessions that we want, accomplishments that we want. I'll tell you something. If you do your best to try to walk with the Lord, as time goes by, your perspective will change greatly. So maybe you have trouble accepting that now and I could understand that because I can remember being a teenager and thinking exactly the way I just described but I promise you, if you're a Christian and you walk with the Lord to any extent, your perspective in this is going to change as you, get, as you go along. Not that, that God didn't breed into us. Not that God didn't make us to love those things and look forward to those things. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things that I just mentioned. Not a thing in the world wrong with those things in the course of life. But you get to a a place in life where you just think to yourself you know i know that i'm in this world but i know that i'm not of this world and if i don't look enough for jesus coming once in a while he turns the temperature up enough that it makes me think a little more about it makes me realize how i ought to be looking makes me realize how i ought to be longing makes me realize how i ought to be living in the light of his return. So what three things? Well, the first is the resurrection. Let's look at our passage because we're not just drawing these things out of the air. Look at this passage. It says here in verse 17, for then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What has preceded this? Verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or a better word for us today is precede because prevent then meant what precede means now. And why was he, what was he said? That not prevent them which are asleep. And then he says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And look at this phrase, the dead in Christ shall rise when? First. So you always have to think to yourself, okay, I I really want to know these facts. I really want to know about the Lord's return, but why was this particular passage written? Well, it was written to the Thessalonians. Why did he write to the Thessalonians? Because they had questions and because in some cases there were misunderstandings and one of those questions and possible misunderstandings were was that believers that they knew, loved ones that they knew who had died, were they going to miss out on the the glory of jesus return were they going to miss all these glorious things about the parousia and the coming of christ and all this kind of stuff and paul writes to them and says you don't have to worry about that brethren there's several things he tells them they don't have to worry about the first thing he says you don't have to sorrow even as others which have no hope don't you love that do we sorrow yes we sorrow Any preacher that would stand up and tell you that it's unspiritual or wrong as a believer to sorrow over the loss of a loved one just hasn't read his Bible. It doesn't say that we don't sorrow. It says we don't sorrow like other people who have no hope. These people are not going to miss out on the, in fact, they're going to have actually the premier place. Where are they now? Well, we've talked about this before. Well, they're in heaven with the Lord. And you say, well, why does the Bible use the term sleep? Because it's referring to the body. And probably most people here have been to the funeral home and you've looked at somebody laid out before and they just seem to be in a repose, almost like they're sleeping. Koimetarion in Greek is cemetery and it means sleeping places. It's referring to the bodies, not the spirits. We know that's true because it says right here, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the them in the clouds and so shall we ever be with the Lord and it says them also which sleep in Jesus in verse 14 will God bring with him well folks look if if when you go to the cemetery that's everything no it's not everything is that true no it's not everything that's just the material part of us you heard the guy that got him into trouble one time, and he got himself into trouble preaching a sermon on this one time. He was trying to comfort people, and he, he thought of the illustration of a, of a nut. And he said, Well, he pointed to the body, and he said, Well, you see, he's here, but the nut's gone to heaven. Well, he said a little bit more, maybe, than he was trying to say when he said that, but I guess we all put our foot in our mouth sometimes and get it wrong but the resurrection the dead in Christ shall rise first now let me make this as practical as I can are you going to have a part in the resurrection that is talking about here will you well that's really the important question to ask people this morning will you you will if you know Christ is your personal savior and that's the only way you will other than that if you come on Sunday night I'll tell you about when the great white throne judgment occurs And the resurrection of the lost, those who don't know Christ as Savior, takes place. Because it too takes place in, the resurrection takes place in two parts. The first has here is the resurrection unto life. This is what Jesus called the resurrection unto life in John chapter five. Then he said this, and I think, in reviewing that file the other day, I think we have this one in this new chorus book we're producing. I'm so tempted to sing it, but I don't want to empty the church. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus had two broken up people, Martha and Mary. He went to Bethany, and they'd lost their brother. Lazarus had died. And he said to them, one of the greatest utterances that you have anywhere in the Bible, one of those great I am sayings where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know that chorus? I, okay, I won't. I'm really tempted. I just love that chorus. I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? That means, he that believeth in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. This is referring to this all believers who are not living when Jesus returns. He that believeth in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. How do you know you're going to have a part in that resurrection that's being described here? He that believeth in me do you believe in Jesus this morning as your personal Savior? Do you know him as your personal Savior? And Jesus continued, because there is going to be a living generation when Jesus returns, and in fact, if the rapture came today, this would be you and I. That'd be really neat. And he continues on, he doesn't just say, he that believeth in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. He continues and says, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he turns to the sister and he says, believest thou this? What's that mean? Well, he said, I am the resurrection and the life because you're here right now and if you believe in Jesus Christ as personal Savior, let me ask you this, do you have eternal life? Yeah, you do. You have eternal life. You have the life of God, and Jesus is saying, if you have eternal life, you will never die. Do you believe this? He's not talking about the body necessarily. He's talking about that immaterial part, our soul, our spirit. But you know I always try to point out to people that any place sin is gone, you can look for redemption to go there and conquer it. There is no stone unturned by the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Do you know that? You can't think and you can't name of one place that the effects of sin have gone in this creation, this whole creation. Not just you and me as believers, but this whole creation. You can't name one facet of it where the redemption of Jesus Christ will not eventually conquer That's why the body's important, because we were created in the image and likeness of God. It's part of that image. It's that chosen vessel that God created to reflect his image, and in that sense, it has importance to God, and when you take that casket containing that body to the cemetery, you lay that person to rest, ensuring certain hope of the resurrection That body isn't going to just stay there. One day, I'm telling you, when this happens, it says here, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. I'd just as soon be a part of that living generation. But if I have to walk the veil and you have to walk the veil, I'll face those moments I'll face those final moments knowing that Jesus said the resurrection is not just an event, it's a person. And if you want to buy into the resurrection, if you want to know eternal life, aren't you glad, and I'm not trying to be unkind by saying this, Christianity doesn't talk about reincarnation. Who wants to come back the way we are now? Think about that for a moment. Think how morbid, think how horrible What you get when man comes up with religion is, reincarnation. Who knows, if you've been bad, you might come back as an ant. If I've been better, I might step on you. Who wants that notion? Who wants to come back into the sin-cursed world in some other whatever? No, beloved. But the Christianity doesn't talk about any reincarnation. Christianity talks about the resurrection. And I know this. I hope you know this. I'm not just up here saying this because it's my job. I hope you can tell I believe this. If I have to face that and walk that veil, I'll know in those final moments that I'm going to be with him and that one day he's coming back and just this very scene that's described here, the dead in Christ shall be raised first, I'll be coming back. My spirit will be coming back with Jesus and my soul and spirit and body will be reunited and I'll have a body like unto his glorious body. That's part of this. What's the second thing that's going to happen? Second thing that's going to happen is transformation. This is kind of what I was talking about a minute ago. We're not going to just come back into this decrepit thing we've got now. That's another thing you're going to find out. I'll just sort of tell you, if the Lord lets you stay on the earth for a while, you're going to find out that it doesn't get better, it gets worse. And I I hope that's not discouraging to you. But I admire the strength that young people have because I can remember when I had that strength and don't anymore. And I can remember when I didn't have low back pain. Everybody here has got something this morning, right? I mean, if, unless you just don't have anything yet, you will. I hate to tell you. Gonna, if you stay here, that's the way it's going to be because these bodies run down. Who, who wants that again? No, I want, I want, I want one like his. I want a glorious body. And the Bible tells us about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the great resurrection chapter in the Bible where Paul says this in the introduction to it. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we will not all die. There will be a living generation when Christ returns, but we shall all be changed. So whether you've gone to be with the Lord and you're a part of that resurrection when Jesus returns, or you're a part of that living generation when Jesus returns, we know we're going to be changed. That's what I want. I want to be changed more and more every day by looking at God's Word and by allowing the Holy Spirit to make me more and more like Jesus, but that's going to be a work in process that doesn't fully culminate until that day. Then I'll say goodbye to sin I'll say goodbye to weakness. I'll say goodbye to temptation. And I'll have a perfect instrument from which to serve God. Transformation. I'm looking forward to that. And the third is recognition. Now, this is what we're going to talk about tonight. Rewards. Recognition. The judgment seat of Christ described for us in a lot of detail in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10-15. through That'll be tonight. Let's ask the last question. What? Why have rapture predictions failed? So why did David Mead go wrong? How did David Mead go wrong? How did Harold Camping go wrong? And a whole host of other people. Well, the answer to that question is simple. It's the verse you have in your bulletin this morning. We either believe it or we don't. We either submit to it or we don't. We're curious, right? So people are curious. People all the time want to study the Bible, which is a good thing. But you know you have to stop where the Bible stops. You can't superimpose your curiosity or your you think you have some special insight that no one else has had. You're always in trouble when you go that way you know. You and I living today in the 21st century you realize we're standing on the shoulders of 20 centuries of people who have studied the Bible. It's unlikely that you're going to have some new revelation that no one ever thought of before. And so the answer is simple. Scripture simply does not give us the date of the rapture. Mark thirteen thirty-two. if you look there in your Bible or in your bulletin, but of that day and of that hour knoweth no man. So why did David Meade say that it's on April 23? He didn't read that and submit to it. He might have read it, but he didn't submit to it, did he? Apparently not. It goes on to say, No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. Well, if Jesus is telling us no one knows the date, right away when you see someone setting a date, you and I should really be on red alert. We should really have all kinds of caution bells going off. Something's not right here with this. So the Bible simply doesn't tell us. In another passage in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were asking, is this when you're going to restore? This is Acts chapter 1 now, after the resurrection, during that 40 days that he was with them on the earth. They were curious, just like you and I are curious, and they said, hey, is this when, because Jesus was glorified, he had a resurrection body, resurrected body, and, and they, they had a lot of questions. I mean, they had a lot of questions when he was with them during his earthly ministry And questions are not wrong. So they said, hey, is this when you're going to do this? Because we got it all wrong before we thought that you came to set up the kingdom. And you kept telling us, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of men. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. And the third day rise again. They got it all wrong. And he kept trying to tell them. And they didn't get it until after the resurrection. So they had a good question. Hey, is this when you're going to do it now? All right, the cross is passed. Are you going to do it now? Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, this. Don't you love this answer? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know. Is that true or not? It is not for you to know. Okay, I want to know, but he says it isn't for you to know. All right, let me ask you a question. Is there some things you'd like to know right now? And I'm not even talking about prophetic things. There Are some things you'd like to know about life? Are there some things that you have to question why about? I think everybody does. There are a lot of mysteries in life. God doesn't always see fit to show us his reason behind many things that he does. He asks us to trust him, and it ain't easy. Well, he told him, It's not for you to know. So we either believe that or we don't. He says, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father hath put in his own power. And so, what are we left to do? Mark 13:33, the very next verse that I after read, verse 32, he says, "Take heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is." Well, so what are we supposed to do? Watch and pray." What does he say to them in Acts chapter one, verse 11? He says, "Don't worry, just, just keep looking. Just keep looking up, and occupy till I come. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven, ye men of Galilee? The angel says. Why are you standing there gazing up into heaven? There's work to do. Didn't he just give you the Great Commission in verse 8? So why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? Didn't you get it? He told you that it's not for you to know the seasons. He's told you about the church age. The Holy Spirit is coming. And you're going to be endued with power on high to be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But then he gave them the promise that everyone he holds so dear. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. We're not told to worry. We're told to expect not to gaze you know, there was a little girl, I wanted to tell you this story, because I I read this, and I just said, you know, sometimes little kids, they really get it, and some kids, sometimes kids get it better than us as adults do, we as adults do. So there's a story about a little girl, and she had gone to church one Sunday morning, and Uh, she heard about the rapture at church maybe like a little girl might be here this morning and hearing about this and wondering and she went home with some questions as children often do and so after church she said mommy do you believe jesus will come back yes could he come today yes in a few minutes yes dear mommy would you comb my hair Mommy, would you comb my hair? I want to look right when Jesus comes. I want to be right when Jesus comes. I'm looking for when Jesus comes. That's exciting. Would you comb my hair? I guess if she had gone on, she might have said, I want to have my best dress on. Out of the mouth of babes. So in conclusion this morning, why did the rapture not occur on April 23. Not because anything is wrong with the Bible. There have been many people, David Mead is not the first, he won't be the last if Jesus tarries. Probably the last time this thing really kicked up in a huge way, although there have been one since this, was back in May of 2011. Some of you will remember. I don't mean to be unkind again, I'm just giving you an example, but Harold Camping of... Family Radio Ministries was a person who did a lot with this kind of thing, and there were billboards all over the place. If you can remember, when you came in on 322, towards, you were coming towards Lewistown, so you're, you're driving west, there was a great big billboard out there about the rapture is coming May 21st, and I gave a sermon back then why the rapture is not going to occur on May 21. And I saw a lot of people preach sermons afterwards, and I, I the ones that I knew, I sort of poked at them a little bit. I said, so why do you preach after May 21? Anybody can do that. So why I not you preach your sermon before that. And I always think to myself, and again, I guess this just reflects how all of us can have human concepts, but there's a little truth to the thing. I just sort of think that if God had that date in mind and some fool came along and made all those predictions and took billboards out all over the country, he'd just change it a day. Because he's already made it clear. We're not to do that. We're not to date set. We don't know when Jesus is coming. And you may say to yourself, well, why did he do that? Wouldn't it be easier if we knew a date? No, 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 think about that for a minute. If you knew that the teacher would never give you a pop quiz, how much homework would you do? Do we we still do that, Mr. Kidd? Okay, I didn't know. But I know when I was in school, they had those things. And if you didn't do your work, you could really get caught. You didn't know when the teacher, the teacher might do it one day, not do it the next. They'd keep you fooled. So they wanted you to do your homework every night. And this is the genius. God has a great wisdom in this. If God told us the date, Suppose Paul knew in the first century that the rapture wasn't going to be until 2049. All those verses he wrote about believing in the the imminency of the Lord's return and how it motivated him might not have had quite the starch. And in every generation it's been that way. No, there's nothing wrong with the Bible. The fault lies with people who simply can't or won't take God at his word and who, whether sincere or sensationalizers, bring harm to the reputation of Christianity. And I would say to you, beloved, let's concentrate on what we do know. Because there's many things that God has revealed to us in his word. What do we know this morning? We know Jesus is coming again. We know it could be today. It could be five minutes from now. It might be five years from now. I know there are people who look at certain events like Jerusalem and I mean Israel coming back into the land and all that and they say well it's easier to see how it could be in our generation than perhaps other generations and I don't really have a problem with that but I'll tell you something I've never really been one to stand up and preach about Bible prophecy and talk about the fact I think it's going to happen soon I think it's going to happen in my lifetime I don't say that I'd like to see that be true but I don't say that I just resist the temptation to go there because the Bible has told us. And I've given you this illustration before, and I'll use this to close, but how many people have had this experience? Probably almost everyone in the audience today, but you've had some important matter that you needed to get resolved, and so you called. And you figured out they really don't want to talk to you. They've got all these phone menus. They've got all these ways to dodge you. You've got to have half omniscience to figure out how to get through the firewall they have so you've had this experience before where you call the number and the phone is answered and you hear something like this all available representatives are currently helping other customers but your call is important to us please stay on the line and someone will be with you shortly did they lie depends on your experience did you know that you might be number one in line? Sometimes people even tell you that. Sometimes they tell you we're experiencing unusual call volume. But many don't necessarily do this, but they do tell you that you'll lose your place in line if you hang up. So I don't know. I mean, no one told me I might be number one in line. In fact, the person before me might just have some very simple question and the representative says, hit F2 on the computer and you're good to go. And they're done and they pick up on my call. And I'm, if I get impatient with this, so it's true. They didn't lie. It's just that shortly depends on what's going on in things that you and I can't see. We don't know how long shortly is going to be. And so you might be number five in line, but you still don't know how long five calls will take. You might get there and they might say, You're number five in line, but you say, Oh, it's going to be 20 minutes. I'm talking to the government. No, that would be 20 hours but you really don't know that. You don't know how fast those calls are going to go before you. And so what do you do? Well, you sit there and you say, well, I got a phone that lets me put this on speaker, so, ever done this before? Oh, come on, you have, I know you have. I have, put the phone on speaker, and I well, I can hear that, and I'm waiting, and the phone's on speaker, and it's playing this music, and every so often they interrupt to say, your call is important to us, someone will be with you shortly, but I've got other things I can do so I might send someone a text I might look at an email I might look at some papers on my desk but you know I gotta keep my ear on that phone because if I don't keep my ear on that phone I might have waited by 20 minutes somebody picks up hello 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 what if I decided you know this is going going on forever I'm going to the men's room they get back and the phone's going burr, 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 because I wasn't there and beloved this is sort of how it tends to work for us we really don't know how long it is until Jesus comes but we know he is coming soon and he wants us to pay attention while we occupy